Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. I'm going to introduce myself. My name's Bobby. If you came here um, last session, thank you so much for coming again. And if it's your first session, then welcome. I really, really hope that you are blessed. Um, I'm just going to really, really quickly just tell you something about myself so that you can at least trust the person who's um, speaking into your sexuality. So my name's Bobby, as I said, and my background, like my testimony really briefly, is that I was really, really, really disillusioned and I ended up just violating my sexuality and I was caught up in a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, um, and I made so many bad decisions highly, highly, highly promiscuous, and I was just looking for love in all of the wrong places. And I literally hit rock bottom, and then Jesus rescued me, and now I just walk in, um, just, I'm not that same person anymore, and I just walk in so much purity, and I love Jesus so much, and I really enjoy talking about sex. Like, I've actually discovered that this is like my favorite, favorite, favorite topic, so... I'm, yeah, I'm really enjoying being on this discovery. I can't believe I actually get to, um, discover God's heart about sexuality. And what I'm realizing is it's such a fascinating, fascinating subject. Like we serve such a brilliant God. Like Jesus is so, so, so brilliant. So I really just pray that you will get something, um, from today's session. So today's session, I'm going to be talking about um, porneia. So porneia is the New Testament word. You can translate it into fornication, and it's the New Testament word for sexual immorality. So I'm going to be talking about that. Before I do anything, I'm going to pray. So join me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you so much because you are sovereign, and I thank you because you know the end from the beginning, and I thank you for every single person that's here, and I thank you for, like, just transparency. I thank you for such a heavy weight, explosive atmosphere of love, and I thank you that your beauty will just be revealed, and your goodness will be revealed throughout all the things that I said are said today, and I just thank you for wisdom. And I thank you for chains breaking. And I I praise you for every single person who's made the decision to come here today. Because, Lord Jesus, there are people, as you know, that have decided that today they're going to draw a line in the sand. And they've decided that today they're going to partner with you in a new way. So I know you're going to honor that. I know you're going to turn up and show up in such a gorgeous way. And you are most welcome to show up exactly how you want. So we just commit this session to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm going to do a quick recap on what I taught last session, um, but the actual podcast itself is available online. So if you would like to listen to the podcast, you can just go to commonwealthchurch.com forward slash podcast. So definitely do listen to them because every single session I am actually building on building on the previous session. But if anyone wasn't here, I'm going to just do a really, really brief, hopefully recap. So, and also I'm going to get Antonia just to pop some 
um, terms up there. I'm not referring to the slides, but the slides are there because I'm going to use quite a lot of like terminology, scientific terminology, and just to make sure that you don't kind of get confused or just so that for um, clarity, they're just going to be up there. So you can keep referring to them as I'm teaching. So, last session, I introduced this whole idea that um, God is the creator and endorser and celebrator of sex. And we talked about the fact that... um we talked about the fact that um, he has ordained sex to be completely enjoyed in marriage and that he ordains for it to be enjoyed in marriage because of this one flesh principle, this beautiful principle where two become one in body, soul and spirit. And when they become one, there's, um, you know, spiritually they, they glue themselves together because of a term that's um, called ikad, which is was up there. So ikad um, does mean to uh, become one. And then you've got another term, cleave. And this term is about um, loyalty and about affection and closeness. So when two become one in marriage, they have this one flesh principle that joins them together, which is underpinned by this cleaving, this dabak, and this underpinning, which, which is this underpinning is what fosters this loyalty and fosters this closeness and this affection that you enjoy in marriage. And this goes hand in hand with what um, neurology does as well when two become one. Chemically, what takes place is there's a bonding that actually happens between both people when they engage in sexual intercourse or any kind of sexual activity. So this bonding that takes place is actually God-ordained and we are all creating with bonding mechanisms and these bonding mechanisms actually prepare you for loyalty within marriage and so when we have sex outside of marriage or we engage in any sexual immorality what happens is those very bonding mechanisms that wire us for loyalty in marriage they actually get damaged and not only that we looked at the fact that um Emotionally as well, it's really difficult to then break up with someone if you do engage in, in that one flesh principle outside of marriage, then not only do you, um, suffer, you know, uh, neurologically because those same chemicals the reason when you actually break up with someone, the reason it's so painful is because it's really hard to actually um, unglue the chemicals. That's where the pain actually kicks in. And then on top of that, we looked at when you actually engage in that one flesh principle outside of marriage, then spiritually, you also open the doors to um, transferences of spirits, and you open the door to lust, and you open the door um, to visitations by the demonic realm. And then we also saw how um, sex within marriage is actually a reflection. It's a mirror of the yada relationship. So yada is to know someone and to know someone deeply. And in the area of sex, yada um, represents the deepest way that you can know someone. And so sex between two people in marriage, in a covenant marriage, in a blood covenant, which happens because by God's design, we're virgins when we get married – 
And so the blood that's actually shed when you have sex for the first time and the hymen breaks, then that actually cuts the blood covenant. And so marriage, um, sexual union in marriage, reflects the blood covenant that we actually have with Jesus because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we are his bride, and we're in a yada relationship with him, in a in an intimate, you know, slowly evolving, where hearts are being revealed and secrets are being shared and this mutual exclusivity that we enjoy with God is the very same type of union that God wants us to enjoy in marriage. And then in a nutshell, what last session ended up with was this, um, just this need for us to rewire our desire and that it didn't matter where we were in our sexual journey, it didn't matter what had actually happened, the bottom line was is that Jesus wants to offer us such a beautiful, beautiful plan and and celebration of our sexuality, and that happens by just rewiring your desire and setting your sights, setting your heart on Jesus. And so in today's session, I'm going to kind of continue on from there, basically. So... This time I'm going to look at porneia. Um, another thing that we looked at last um, session was that, so yada is God's term for sex. He does not actually even refer to sex outside of that because sex outside of that isn't actually sex, it's sexual disorder. And the term for that is actually zakab. So zakab in the Old Testament is a word that's used to um, describe either sexual immorality or just the mechanical act of sex. So you know when you have, um, in Genesis, you have like, um, if you have someone who has a wife that God has ordained and then they have sex like when Abraham had sex with Hagar. So that was, that was zakab. Because it wasn't actually covenant sex, that was actually zakab, that wasn't yada. So God refers to yada sex when you're actually in a covenant, mutually exclusive relationship. Anything outside of that is zakab um, or bow. There's another word for that as well. Bow, which just defer, uh, refers to like the penetrative act of sex. And then in the New Testament, the same term, zakab, is um, porneia. So, in today's session, I'm going to look at um, porneia, but not really from the perspective that that you, I guess, would expect. Um, the approach that I'm actually going to take is that we're going to look at how our brains are actually wired for sexual arousal, okay? But porneia, so uh, sexual immorality, and the culture around us hijacks this process that we have been wired with for arousal, okay? Now, in order for us to not surrender and not to yield to what society says about sex, and in order for us not to yield to the spirit of sexual immorality, we constantly need to have our minds renewed. That's the only way that we're going to walk in sexual purity and resist the ways of the world, which are just so desensitized to purity. The only way that we're, sorry, to desensitize to um, sexual immorality, the only way we're going to be able to resist that if we constantly renew our minds. So the foundational scripture for this teaching is going to be Romans 12, 2. 
So the NLT says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So God does have this incredible, perfect will for our sexuality, but we actually have to unlearn all the stuff that we have picked up along the way when it comes to sexuality. So our our brains actually have to be rewired. And when we become Christians, we almost have to unlearn unholiness and learn holiness. Because our spirit man is holy. Our spirit man is perfect. Our spirit man knows how to walk in divine sexuality. Our spirit man has eternity inside of it. It knows the ways of God. But our soul has to unlearn the rubbish that it has picked up in the world and in, its upbringing, in our upbringing as we developed our sexual character throughout our lives. So when we come to the Lord, there's a lot of unlearning that has to take place, not just about sexuality, but about everything. And so our soul actually has to catch up to what our spirit man already knows And that actually is the outworking of our Christian character being developed throughout our whole Christian life. Our soul catching up to what our spirit man already knows. Now, the soul, as we know, gravitates towards whatever we feed it. So, if we feed, or whatever we feed, so if we feed our flesh then obviously our soul and mind, will and emotions are going to gravitate towards the things of the flesh, so towards um, fleshly senses. So we have spiritual senses and we have, you know, just normal biological senses. So if we feed our flesh, then we're going to be responding constantly to our emotions and we're going to respond constantly to what we want to see and what we want to hear and what we want to taste and what we want to feel and what we want to smell. But if we feed our spirit man, then our soul, our mind, will, and emotions will gravitate towards the things of the spirit. Now, the fleshly man perceives sex through its biology, okay, through its hormones, through the way he feels or she feels when it comes to sex. But the spiritual man knows that sex is not mere biological, The spiritual man knows that sex is something that involves mind, body, and spirit. Okay? Now, in the area of sexuality, why this can be difficult is because the amount of chemicals and the power of the chemicals that that get released when it comes to sex, when it comes to either when you think about sex, when you encounter somebody, when you're attracted to somebody. So this whole area of sexuality, the way that we are biologically wired and the way that our hormones are wired, there are so many powerful chemicals that actually get released in this very process, in our sexuality, that it can actually have a knock-on effect on our soul. It can impact the way that our mind, will, and emotions work. But... Our mind has the capacity, it has the power to overcome the flesh. Our mind has the power to rule and master our hormones, master our sex drive, master our our emotions. 
But the way that is done is by constantly renewing our mind. Now, as I said earlier on, that God has wired us for sexual arousal within marriage. Okay? Now, this idea of arousal, from what I've researched, is broken down into three stages of a process. And it begins with attraction, and then it moves into arousal, and then it moves into response. So I'm going to actually, like, give you an example of what this might look like in a sexual encounter. Please don't look so serious, okay? Like, everyone looks so serious, and I'm talking about sex, and I, and I feel like, like, you know, yeah. So just go with me, okay? So imagine that this is like Adam and Eve, all right? So Adam and Eve... They had sex once they came out of the garden. So imagine they've come out of the garden and they're they're about to engage in sex. Now, the way that God has actually ordained it is that, so Adam sees Eve and she's obviously now wearing animal skin because she had to put animal skin on. And imagine he finds that animal skin very attractive, okay? And then she's wearing a perfume. And imagine like... I don't know what kind of perfume you would find in the Garden of Eden, but let's just say orange blossom or something like that. (laughs) So she's put on a dab of orange blossom or something, and he's just thinking, man, Eve, you are so hot. Uh, Or she says something to him, or, you know, she whispers something to him or whatever. So he gets turned on. This is the actual hormonal or neurological, biological process that's going to take place. So his nerve cells, they're actually going to respond to his senses. So his senses, the fact that he smells the orange blossom, okay, or he sees her wearing her, you know, her animal skins, or she says something to him. So his senses are picking those things up as a sexual cue. And then his nerve cells, because our body is filled with billions and billions and billions of nerve cells, so his nerve cells then detect those messages from the senses, and then send signals to the brain. And in response, the brain will then um, process that information. And because of the emotions that will be evoked, certain chemicals will then be released. And so he sees Eve, he smells her orange blossom, he thinks she looks mighty fine in like her animal skins, and as he's thinking these things, there's certain chemicals that are being released, starting off with testosterone. Now men, they release testosterone all day, okay? That's why they think about sex far more than women. And But when they pick up a sexual cue, they um, release testosterone in a greater measure, And testosterone is a hormone that um, enables the sex drive and it it adds to sexual attraction. So at the moment, Adam's got like bucket loads of testosterone being released and it's adding to the arousal. And then at the same time, Adam and Eve are both, um, their brains are both releasing dopamine. And dopamine is a chemical which when you take it in moderation, it's phenomenal. Like you would, like I mentioned last session, you would, you would, um, 
the brain would release dopamine if you were like in some really crazy fast sports or, you know, if you're about to engage in sex or if you're even doing something as basic as satisfying your hunger with a meal, it, you would release dopamine. And a dopamine Dopamine is a chemical that really um, gets excited and really, um, you know, anticipates the actual very act of being satisfied. And so dopamine is being released and dopamine makes you crave that activity. So this is what's happening inside of them. And then vasopressin is being released in Adam and vasopressin bonds you to the person that you're having sex with and the way that it bonds you is that it's because the chemicals get released and the chemicals then impact the way the brain thinks and it gets wired for bonding so it bonds with the person that you're having sex with and it fills you it fills you up with feelings of affection and love and loyalty so basically it's dabak dabak is what's taking place a clean is taking place and then for um, Eve she's getting oxytocin happening and that's the same thing as what vasopressin does in men so it's bonding her to Adam and then you've got other chemicals that I didn't know how to pronounce so they're being released um, and what they do is they almost like they they etch the the encounter on your brain as a sexual memory and they will um, you know say that this is a good experience and they'll store that as a good experience it can work in the other way as well it can store something as a negative experience as well so all of this explosion of chemicals is now creating attention not attention, a tension. And so this tension then requires a release. And this is why people have to have an orgasm. Because an orgasm comes as a response to all of this sexual tension that's being released. And so Adam and Eve, because they were perfect, they probably orgasmed at the same time. <laughs> And so when that happened, um, when that happened, um, so there's a fresh release of chemicals and then these chemicals um, are rewarding chemicals. And so these rewards, because what happens is when the brain um, registers an action, it will then make a mental note of, note of it and it will create a mental pathway. Now, if the brain receives the same signal again and again, it becomes a mental pathway that irregularly treads. Now, if a reward is attached to a behavior, it becomes a preferred route in the, the, the map of thinking. And so ideally what will happen is that, and this is actually what happens, is that that orgasm that you have, that climax that you have, that behavior that's attached with a reward, that's what the brain thinks. You know what? I am loving how this feels. I definitely want to do this again. I definitely want this to be a preferred route. And this is actually how habits are formed because preferred routes are again and again and again and again carried out in the mental um, thinking of a brain. So by God's design, what will then happen is the brain's like, yep, I definitely want to do this again. So Adam in his brain is thinking, yep, when I have sex with Eve, when she puts that orange blossom on, this is it. I definitely, definitely want to do this again and again and again because I get a reward. And so by God's design, we have a fulfilling sex life. They keep having sex again and again. Every time they have sex spiritually, they reestablish their blood covenant. 
and soul in the, in the soul, in the mind, will, and emotions, you've got all these chemicals that are constantly being released every single time they have sex, constantly knitting to them together as one flesh, and that yada union that they enjoy, that intimacy, that slow evolving revealing, that slow evolving exposure of secrets and and you know heart and and just who they are, intellect and the whole lot. That is that yada union is constantly getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so by God's design, um, having sex repeatedly or, you know, regularly in a fulfilling way constantly just adds to this communication that you enjoy in marriage and it just enhances the yada intimacy. That's how this process of attraction, arousal and response should work in a marriage relationship if you're having sex. So, what do you do with your arousal before marriage? Because you're, you know, if you've got all these hormones, if you've got all this testosterone, then your brain actually needs to be wired to be told that, you know, your testosterone has to be held down until marriage. And, you know, your response, your hormones actually have to be taught how to be um, stewarded with holiness. And this is why constantly we need our minds to be renewed so that our brain understands that holiness and stewarding your sexuality and walking in purity actually becomes a mental pathway that it chooses to take again and again and again. And this is where renewing the mind is crucial. This is why we have to constantly be listening to the word of God. We constantly have to renew our mind with the things of God because our brain, the genetics of it, actually have the capacity to be molded by the word of God. And we, our mind, will and emotions can master the way that our body actually works. And this is why it's so crucial that we make sure our young people are actually hearing the word of God from such a young age. Because if their minds are not renewed, if they don't know what to do with arousal, then everywhere they turn in this pornographic society, in this pornified world where sexual immorality is the norm, if they don't understand what to do with their arousal, they will end up responding to it. Because our bodies are actually wired for arousal. And what needs to happen is the word of God needs to penetrate our thinking repeatedly. And so this um, doctor, I guess she's a neurologist, I'm not really sure, but her name's Caroline Leaf and I've been studying, you know, watching a lot of her um, stuff on YouTube as I was prepping for this. And I know you guys probably already know this, I didn't know this, but um, what she actually explains is that when you like scientists, so secular scientists, they, they've spent years and years of actually obviously working out how the brain works and, you know, the mind works, etc. But over the last 25 years, she's been carrying out studies to see what the impact of the Word of God actually has on your brain. And now secular scientists are actually having to agree with the fact that when you listen to the Word of God and when you pray and when you um, connect with God, your actual brain changes. The lining of your brain gets 
thicker. You actually become smarter. Like, I, though, I know, obviously, if we're children of God, like, obviously, you're going to get smarter because we have the mind of Christ. But when that begins to look like something tangible, that even secular scientists cannot deny that the word of God and prayer actually changes the shape of your brain, then we as Christians would be pretty foolish to not drench ourselves with the word of God every single day. And I actually think that we don't realize We've been given this treasure. We've got this gold mine of wisdom that is the bread that we should be eating. But sometimes we don't realize that the word of God has truly got the potential to change the way we think. Because if we did, we would definitely listen to the word of God more and more and more. And so it's crucial for our young people and for all of us to actually hear the word of God on a regular basis. Hearing it at church on a Sunday in Sunday school is not enough for any of us. Like what we, what we hear at church on a Sunday, if that's the only biblical input that's happening in our mindset during the week, that's not going to do anything. Because in order for something to be established, in order for your brain to prefer something as a preferred route, it has to be done repeatedly. And we sometimes forget, we really, really do forget that our minds are being renewed. And so we have to regularly make sure our minds are actually being renewed as we become adults. That's why the renewal of our mind is so crucial because we're having to undo our sexual history almost a lot of the times. And this actually goes hand in hand with what psychologists say. Not, you know, some psychologists say that Heterosexuality is actually environmentally, not genetically determined. So this is what psychologists say. Now, I know that God made us heterosexual. Like, I know that. But we live in a society where you actually have to contend for heterosexuality. It's not a given anymore. It's not just standard that people will be raised as heterosexuals or they develop into heterosexuality. We not only have to contend for holiness, we also have to contend for heterosexuality. And so we have this long, long journey of our lives that starts at the time of our birth and it develops into adulthood. And the whole time our sexual character is actually being developed. Now, so these psychologists that say that heterosexual heterosexuality is environmentally and not genetically determined, they've got like a whole, you know, pattern of heterosexual behavior that or stages in our lives where heterosexuality gets developed. Now, Adam obviously didn't have this problem. Adam knew he was heterosexual. Adam knew that when he saw Eve, she was the bone of his bone, the flesh of his flesh. He had the mind of Christ. But because we do live in a fallen world, we do actually have to make sure that all through our, you know, the development of our sexual character, that we are following biblical patterns for our sexuality, not culture's um, patterns for sexuality. And so... In this, um, in these different stages that psychologists talk about, um, there's certain things that happen. So to begin with, they say where you're born. So when you're born, like the way that you're brought up, whether you've got a nurtured like background, and so if you've got both parents there, if you've got love and affection when you're being brought up, that has a knock-on effect on actually how your sexual character is developed. Then they go on to say. 
um, that your um, identification with the same-sex parent, so if you've got a same-sex parent there, so a girl could look at her mum and say, oh, when I grow up, I just want to be like mummy. Dad could say, when I grow up, I want to be just like dad. And so they say that these things definitely help to foster heterosexuality. And then also, um, you know, when you're with uh, your friendship groups and your same-sex friendship groups, and then you begin to see that, well, you know, all the, everyone that I hang around with is with girls, and then over there is the boys. So, like, your friendship circles also determine the pattern of your um, sexuality. And then it goes on to say gender conformity. So when you identify with what society says about how a man should be or how a woman should be in their femininity or their um, mas masculinity. And then it goes on to say um, how you're treated as a boy or a girl and then puberty, how puberty affects you, how falling in love affects you, what culture says about sexual behavior that obviously impacts um, the development of your sexual character. And then it goes on to say that certain um, instances or certain um, incidents happen during your life that could also impact your sexual character. So, you know, unique circumstances. So coupled with all of those patterns plus unique circumstances is what um, develops your sexual character. Now... Psychologists also believe that when this normal pattern of heterosexuality isn't followed, this is when homosexuality can come in. So this is what psychologists, um, some studies show, that if this normal heterosexual pattern of sexual development does not get followed or it gets violated or it gets interrupted, this is when homosexuality can get developed. But as far as I'm concerned, if this pattern gets interrupted by anything that's not of God, then it's not just homosexuality that can develop, but any kind of sexual disorder can develop. So promiscuity can develop. You know, like... Um, I don't know, fetishes can develop. Anything can develop, as, as well as homosexuality. Loads of things can develop. And this is why, as Christians, we have to make sure that when we are raising our young people, that every stage of their development is a healthy, holy environment where they will grow up into healthy, heterosexual, holy young people. Because at, during these, during this development of, um, sexuality, the enemy will try his hardest to make sure that they, their sexuality is violated again and again and again. And we know that because it's happened to many of us. Many of us are sitting here and many of us are quite aware of the fact that we didn't have a holy, healthy, heterosexual upbringing. We could, we may have been brought up as heterosexuals, but it may not have been holy. It may not have been healthy. You know, there's so many different things that could have come. And so we have to make sure as a Christian, you know, as a body of Christ, we have to try our hardest that when our children are being even born, that there are parents there that are going to give them a stable home. 
that they've been brought up by a mother and a father. Now, you know, we live in a broken world, and so it does mean that you are going to have single, you know, parent families, and there's a grace for all of that. But we, as a body, have to make sure that every child in our care has got male and female role models. We have to make sure that they've been brought up with like a, a, a healthy understanding of what holy intimacy looks like. We have to role model intimacy to them at a young age so that they don't experience neglect. So they don't, you know, end up engaging in some kind of sexual disorder because they are craving just someone to hold them. We have to make sure that our children have got, you know, healthy um, understandings and holy understandings of what it means to be a, a, a young man or a young woman in the Lord so that they don't let culture define what masculinity looks like. They don't let culture dis- define what femininity looks like. like. At the moment, you know, this whole idea that you can make a choice, you know, this whole transgender agenda where you are allowed to decide as a six-year-old if you want to be a boy or a girl. Like, that's ridiculous because God has made each and every one of us with a purpose, with a plan. Who we are in our sexuality, in our gender is very much part of how God's going to use us. No one has the right to turn around and say, I don't want to be a girl anymore or I don't want to be a boy anymore. And so we have to raise our young people to understand that they need to celebrate their gender. They need to celebrate their purity. Otherwise, the culture will define it for them. And we have to make sure that our culture doesn't tell our children and doesn't tell us what is sexually okay. That it's not okay to have sex before marriage. You know, we looked at all of that last last session. It's not okay, you know, to engage in any kind of sexual activity and think it's all right before marriage, you know, as long as you don't actually do the act of sex, you can do everything else, that's not okay. And it's not okay to dress promiscuously. And it's not okay to flaunt your sexuality. And all these things, it doesn't matter how many music videos, it doesn't matter what Beyonce might do, it doesn't matter what might be okay in EastEnders, our young people have to understand that there is a holy, celebratory way to carry your sexuality, and it's not going to be defined by society, it's going to be defined by the Word of God. And we have to make sure that that's foundational for our young people. Like, there's no reason why we can't talk to our young people about sex and really go to the heart of it with them. Because if we don't talk to them about it, they're going to end up developing sexual cues, or they're going to end up picking up sexual cues in society and not knowing what to do with the arousal. So we have to teach them that it's not the fact that your sex drive is wrong, but there is an ordained time for your sex drive to come alive. Therefore, there's an ordained time for you to respond to the arousal mechanisms that your brain is wired with. So if we don't tell them about this stuff, then the internet will. If we don't tell them about this stuff, then their mate in the playground will. But it won't be a good report. It won't be what God has said. So we have to make sure that this development of the sexual character that each and every one of us has and the young people in our care that we're stewarding, we have to make sure that we do our utmost to ensure that it's a a holy, healthy, developed sexual character and not one that is defined by the world. And the other thing is, it's like during our journey, like I said earlier, so many things can creep in. So many things. Abuse can creep in. You know, it may not just be the culture. It may be sin. And it's not even your sin. 
Abuse can creep in. Molestation can creep in. Someone could have exposed you to an image that, you know, that you can't get out of your head. Maybe someone told you that sex was dirty. Maybe someone told you that sex is something that we don't talk about. Especially in the Christian culture, like half the church thinks sex is, you know, of the devil. So here we are, like I mentioned last week, like last session, we've probably got untold men and women who actually, you know, are so repressed, they might be frigid, you know, like because that's what actually happens. Like if you don't, you know, if you don't know how to celebrate your sexuality in a wholly healthy way, frigidity does come in, repression does come in, and then marriages end up suffering, and then you can't be, you know, um, uh, confident in the bedroom. You can't enjoy yourself with your husband or your wife because you actually think that sex is dirty. All of these things affect our sexual character. And so what we need to make sure we do, that the stuff that may have crept in, the stuff that has violated our holy, healthy sexual upbringing, that development, we have to uproot it. We have to make sure that the impact of that on our thoughts and our behaviours gets uprooted. We have to rewire the way that our brain thinks so it no longer follows those established patterns of thinking, but it follows the word of God. And we have to make sure that those memories and those, um, you know, sexual cues that, that you may have become accustomed to because of something that happened during that journey of development, we have to make sure that if you've become accustomed to those sexual cues, that they get rewired. That's what we have to do. Because it's all about these sexual cues that we have in society or those that get established because of stuff that happened during this sexual um, development and it's learning how to reject the cues that are not of God and learning how to yield them to the spirit of God and learning how to resist them so that resisting temptation becomes a mental pathway that our brain is wired to follow. It's what needs to happen. And, you know, just going back to, like, this psychologist report um, about if, um, if that pattern of heterosexual development isn't followed, it will then potentially, it has the potential to lead to homosexuality. Um, like, homosexuality is such a tender, tender, tender Thing, because this is identity we're talking about, and I am in no like. Who am I to make any judgment? Like, who am I to make any assumption? So, I am not in any way whatsoever making any judgments. And I, you know, there are homosexuals who hate the fact that they're homosexual. They hate it. They're asking God, like, take this desire away from me. Like, why did you make me this way? Why is it that I've, you know, got these desires for the same sex? And so what psychologists will tell you is that in this pattern, if there's neglect, if someone from the same sex um, rejects them or lets them down, if they get rejected by the same sex peers, if they get violated by getting exposed to something, There's so many different things that can happen that can then create homosexuality 
in a person's life. But there are so many people that don't want that. They want to be delivered from homosexuality. But some of them will tell you that I can't help it. I was born this way. But God did not make anyone homosexual. He didn't. And if psychologists are saying that heterosexuality is learned behavior, then how can homosexuality be genetic? It can't be. If heterosexuality isn't genetic, then how can homosexuality be genetic? But I believe that it's just another sexual cue that's developed in life because there's been a glitch in the matrix. The same as any other kind of violation of our sexual development. And so when it does come to this notion that, you know, people do sometimes believe that it's so inbuilt in me, surely I must be born with it. But homosexuality isn't genetic. And many of the studies that they're carrying out now will literally support the evidence that instead of it being genetic, it's actually very, very much influenced by the culture around you and your environment. And although they're, you know, they have carried out, like tests are becoming more and more obviously um, uh, able, I guess, where you can get stronger results. So even with the results that they've carried out most recently to test whether, you know, they carry out uh, tests with twins, so to carry out, sorry, to see whether um, both twins end up with homosexuality, that's what they end up um, focusing on. So only 10%, less than 10%, of all of the, the results that they got determined that um, homosexuality could maybe be genetic, less than 10%. And it wasn't even that it was genetic, it was that there was a trait there that could possibly lead you into the direction of homosexuality. So it wasn't even that those people had a, a genetic um, you know, disposition towards um, homosexuality. They had a trait that could potentially lead them towards homosexuality. But that 10% is no different to a genetic influence that we all have. We are all created, according to psychologists, that we all have a 10% genetic disposition towards something, whether it's bedwetting, whether it's, you know, anger, whether it's um, uh, compulsive lying, whether it's alcohol, whether it's promiscuity. So everyone, all human beings, according to, um, you know, research, have this 10% possible potential that you could behave in a certain way. So homosexuality just kind of fits in with that. It's not that it actually has any real substance. It's just a predisposition towards a certain kind of behavior. But 90% of how we behave is actually based on the culture around us and the environment around us. And when it comes to homosexuality, um, things such as the whether you were born, born in the city or whether you were raised in the city as opposed to in a, a rural area, so results, um, tests will actually show that if you're born in an urban area, you are 3.3 times more likely to turn 
to develop homosexuality than if you were in a rural area. And if you're a woman, then you're 2.3 times more likely to possibly become uh, gay if you live in a city. So these are some of the environmental um, contributors to a homosexual lifestyle as opposed to it being genetic. Another thing is that if you um, are being raised by um, a same-sex couple or same-sex parents, then you have a 12 times more um, probability that you're going to identify yourself as same-sex or, you know, so, uh, identify yourself as homosexual. 12 times if you were someone who had heterosexual parents, or if you've got role models that are gay, then there's a 12 times probability that you're actually going to identify yourself as gay. And then mainly, though, they say culture and what's happening in culture will drive you towards homosexuality. And I know that because when I was in my crazy days, people were messing around with the same sex. And you did it not because you were gay, but you did it because you could. And you did it because it was in the culture. It was something to do. You were off your nut. You know, you were drunk as a skunk. And so if everyone was doing it, you were just like, hey, let's just do it. But did it mean you were gay? No. Did it mean you were experimenting? Yes. But I think what happens with homosexuality, and again, it's not for me to make any judgments or any assumptions, but this is what I'm just thinking. I'm thinking that with homosexuality, it's not something in the Bible that was just like, oh, you know, some of the people in Sodom carry out, you know, uh, homosexual behavior, let's frown on it. It wasn't like some passing sin that, you know, the Bible was just like, mm, you know, we'd rather not. Homosexuality is actually a violation of the created order. Homosexuality actually violates God's mandate to all of mankind. So God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You cannot do that if you're homosexual. And that mandate was God's mandate for family. And so when homosexuality, you know, rejected that mandate... It also rejected family. And I think what happens is, in the culture that we live in, you can end up ex you know, experimenting with homosexuality. But I think that because people are looking, especially in the homosexual uh, community, they're looking for family. Because they've rejected God's mandate, God's order for family. So they're looking for family. And so when you engage in a homosexual, maybe, uh, relationship or fling or whatever, sometimes, because you want to belong, and because this is why there's such a massive gay community, because it's a counterfeit community, it's a counterfeit family that has been created outside of God. So sometimes you have this sexual relationship with someone who's of the same sex, and even though you may not be interested in the sexual encounter itself, and you may not be gay, but because you want family, you want community, you want to belong. And so I think that sometimes you become part of the community and adopt yourself as a homosexual because at least you've got a family. And I think that's how sometimes homosexuality becomes a sexual preference 
because people are looking for love in all the wrong places. And in actual fact, we live in a society where there's so much loneliness and hate. If I can be part of a family and all I have to do is be gay, then I'll do it. At least I'll be loved in return. That's just my kind of understanding. I'm not saying that's the way that it is, but I think that's sometimes how homosexuality can get developed because people are just actually looking for love. And I think this, um, I think with this pattern, you do have, like I said, sexual cues get created all the time that you learn, you, that you find yourself getting aroused by. And I think pornography is something that will create a billion sexual cues that if you entertain it, your ability or your desire to get aroused will literally blow out of proportion. Because that's what pornography does. It exposes you to illicit sex and it exposes you to these images that literally like penetrate your brain and they get your brain wired in a certain way and then you've got all the hormones. The thing with porn is, is that if you, if we're not militant about it and if we don't resist it with militancy and if we're not intentional about it, we will get sucked into it because it's everywhere. It's in the fiber of our society. Mild porn is seen in advertising and fashion all the time. You know, it's in all the music videos, it's everywhere that we go. And then obviously we've got, you know, extreme porn, like hardcore porn that you can um, get as well. And the fact that it's a billion pound thriving industry that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every single day. And it's an industry that actually takes our, our thirst for intimacy our need for intimacy to be known by someone and to know someone, it takes that thirst and, he, and it makes it into a product to be consumed. And it takes human beings, image bearers of Christ, and it makes them into disposable objects of consumption. So even though many of the reasons you might get involved in pornography may be because you're hungry for intimacy, what ends up happening is the very image that you are, you know, seeking intimacy from ends up being someone that you end up just disposing. And so here you are with this mechanism of pornography where even though you're looking for intimacy, it becomes self-gratifying. And you've got this whole array of sexually explicit material that you can literally just generate serve, satisfy your with, yourself with at literally the click of a button. And even though initially you may have started looking for intimacy, it actually just becomes idolatry. It becomes something that you do just to give yourself a kick and just to satisfy yourself. And so even though you originally may be looking for intimacy, what will end up happening is that the very image that you may have become bonded with, that very image will be something that at a click of a button, if you get bored, or it doesn't float your boat anymore, it doesn't meet, meet your needs anymore, you can just click that person off and move to the next person. 
And you don't have to acknowledge that person as an image bearer of Christ. You don't have to acknowledge them as somebody that Jesus actually died on the cross to save. You can just switch that face off your memory and move on to another image. Because the nature of pornography and the nature of lust is what satisfied you a week ago is not going to satisfy you a week later. And by its very nature, it will never stay at the same level. It needs more and more and more and more in order to try and satisfy your lust, but it's insatiable. So even though you don't want to look at a million images, even though you don't want to constantly keep flicking and keep flicking and keep flicking, it just keeps happening because you're not satisfied with what you were satisfied with at one point. And even though you're looking for intimacy, what pornography does, it actually fosters casual sex. And it tries to separate the body from the soul and the spirit. And we know that that's impossible. And the word tells us it's impossible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 16 to 20 says there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. And this is the thing with pornography. It can't become one flesh. It cannot have ikad. It doesn't have yada, intimacy. You cannot be intimate. You cannot know the secrets and the yearnings of the heart of a virtual object. You can never be known in return. And the thing with pornography is that godly sex breeds life. You know, godly sex say, says procreate. But when it comes to pornography, it breeds death. Like the amount of abortions that are carried out in the porn industry in order to just keep, you know, the actresses going, they're not allowed to have babies. And then on top of that, many women in the porn industry do not live beyond the age of 50 because of four reasons. One, they die from drug abuse. Two, sexually transmitted diseases. Three, they get killed by their pimp or their boyfriend. Four, they commit suicide. So pornography actually breeds death, not life. Yet, we have so many people in the church that have found themselves so trapped in this evil and they didn't want it. It's not like someone sets out to say, do you know what? I want to be addicted to porn. I want this bondage. No one does that. There's so many different things that could get you caught in pornography. And sure, sometimes it might be that someone is curious someone is bored. Sometimes it might be that they got exposed to an image that then led them to pornography. It could be someone that's actually waiting on the Lord for a husband or a wife, but they've been waiting so long and they've got all these desires and they don't know what to do with these desires. So they're thinking, well, do you know what? Maybe rather than me having sex with someone, let me just look at this porn porn film or let me just log on to this website until I get married just until I get married. Or it could be someone who, for whatever reason, has a broken marriage. Could be someone who's lonely. Could be someone who's widowed. Could be someone who's under stress. 
There's so many things that will lead you to pornography. But because of the nature of pornography, it's not harmless. It actually ends up being a death warrant. And the crazy thing with porn is that because of the crazy chemicals that get released... You know, we talked about when I gave the example of Adam and Eve, like all those different chemicals that get released during the God-ordained process of sexual arousal. So all that is happening when someone's engaging in pornography, all of that's happening. But in addition to that, you have got the taboo. You've got all of that, you know, that fear of getting caught. You've got all these, you know... um, like the secrecy, all this stuff is just adding to like the tension. And then at the same time, you're making attachments, like cleaving is actually taking place. The neurological chemicals are kicking in, but you're attached, your mind is, you know, your brain is bonded to a virtual image. And then the fact that um, in your brain, it's when, like I said earlier, it's when a behavior is attached attached with a reward, that's what makes it into a, you know, a habitual path. And when it comes to, you know, watching porn, then obviously you're going to engage in masturbation. And the orgasm that is then going to happen is like this explosion of fireworks coupled with all of the intensity of maybe getting caught, you know, and all the attachments, like this firework of chemicals is what gets you addicted. It's the actual act of the masturbation that the the sexual cue right at the beginning, that image or, you know, that video, it's not that video itself, it's what you do in response. It's the experience that gets carried out in response and the reward that's attached to it that you actually become addicted to. And because dopamine is all about anticipation, it's all about excitement, about what's going to happen. And so it's the dopamine that constantly that's getting released. That's what's fueling the addiction because dopamine is addictive. And in moderation, dopamine is a great chemical, but it was never, ever, ever meant to be consumed in high quantities. And in pornography or any kind of sex addiction, the amount of dopamine that gets released is so unhealthy that it actually causes brain damage. And the thing that they liken dopamine to the most is cocaine. And so if you take two brains and you you assess two brains, they will pretty much look the same if one person has got a cocaine addiction and the other person has got an addiction to pornography, the way that the dopamine eats away at the brain is pretty similar to a cocaine addiction. And so it causes brain damage because it erodes the brain. And what it actually does is it eats away parts of your brain so you're not thinking rationally anymore. But the part of your brain that gets heightened by the dopamine is the impulsive part, the part that's irrational, the part that, you know, wants to do this or wants to do that or wants to look at this or wants to look at that. That's the part that you begin to respond to and you actually start carrying out neurotic behavior because you're just all about the impulses. And the place where you're meant to be rational, the part of your brain that says, hold on, dude, like steady on, I think you need to 
not do that, that part is not in operation anymore. So dopamine is so, so, so dangerous because it is addictive. But the craziest, craziest, craziest thing about that isn't even the dopamine. The craziest thing about that is the lie. It's the lie because that person who's caught up in pornography thinks that having self-sex in response to a virtual image is going to be more rewarding than sex in marriage. That's the lie. Because people think that the reward, because people are now, they're so addictive, they're going after that chemical reward of orgasm. That's what they're now being driven by and all the dopamine that gets added to that experience. That's what's driving them. And they think this lie, which is that I'm after that orgasm and I can't guarantee an orgasm in the world. I can't guarantee an orgasm with my husband or my wife. The only way I can guarantee an orgasm is when I watch that porn um, image or, you know, that video. Because maybe in their mind, they believe this lie that when I go home, I don't even know if I'm going to get sex. I don't even know if my wife's going to want to look at me. I don't even know if my wife's going to be upset again. I don't even know if my husband's going to reject me again. I don't even know if my husband's going to say, do you know what, sorry, love, I've got a headache. You know? And so in someone's mind... Someone believes this lie that actually to acquire an orgasm in my reality, in my marriage, is so difficult, is so out of bounds, is so unlikely, I can't cope with the rejection, I can't cope with, you know, being made to feel less of a man or less of a woman, I can't be made to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to hear those words again that all you ever think about is sex. Actually, rather than all of that, as my Nigerian friends will say, all of that wahala, you know, Rather than all of that, do you know what? I'll just go for this quick fix. I'll just go for the orgasm. At least I know I can guarantee it. But the lie there is that the orgasm and the reward that you get in in porn can never, ever match the reward that you're going to get in marital sex. And there's several reasons for that. There's even chemical reasons for that. Because the brain is actually, like by nature, porn does this thing. It excites more than it satisfies. So even though you think that the reward over here in porn is much better than this non-existent reward at home, that I don't even know if it's going to happen or not, but in reality, because porn excites more than it satisfies, you can never truly actually be satisfied with porn anyway. And the way that it works is this way. Our brain has got two pleasure systems. One system is the excitement of pleasure, and one is the satisfaction of pleasure. The exciting pleasure system is fueled by dopamine. So it's all about, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is the next image I'm going to click on. This is what I'm going to do to that person. Oh, I'm going to join this one. Oh, I'm going to check out this film. And it's all about fueling anticipation. It's all about what's going to happen when your need gets met. It's all about the imagination. This is where the addiction kicks in because this is the part of your brain that releases dopamine. Whereas the, uh, the satisfaction pleasure system This is where the endorphins and the oxytocin, the bonding chemicals are. 
And this part of your brain needs the real thing. This is where the feelings of well-being and the feelings of satisfaction are when your need actually gets met. And what porn does is it hyperactivates the excitement system. This is all about the anticipation. But the satisfaction system gets starved because the satisfaction system needs the real thing. It needs touch. It needs tenderness. It needs affection. It needs you know, mutual relationship. And so porn starves that part. So you actually end up getting extremely excited and very little satisfaction. And then on top of that, the thing with porn is that it's after quick, you know, quick sex. Very, very long anticipation, but actually there's an urgency to it because there's an addiction to it. It's after having lots and lots and lots of sexually, um, you know, sexual partners, sexual images. It's all about variety. It's all about, um, you know, the anticipation. But our brain actually was originally wired for slow, evolving yada intimacy. For one person that you discover over time. And the other thing with porn, the porn-saturated mind, can only actually receive the reward in porn in one or two ways. You know, because when you watch porn... You can only really masturbate or go and have sex with someone. It's not really a lot you can do. You can have a mechanical reward and it's very, very limited. But what God has actually ordained in this God-given process of sexual attraction, arousal and response, there's nothing mechanical about it. What God wants is in this fulfilling marriage that the entire process is something that you want to engage with. He hates this lie where someone thinks, I can have this quick fix and it will satisfy me. He hates the fact that you're just going for this mechanical reward. Because the way that God has wired it is all of it, the attraction, the arousal, the response, all of it is something that should be pursued. All of it should be filled with glory. All of it should be something that you're after. Look, just read Song of Solomon. All of that's about arousal. All of that's about desire, about what they're going to do to each other. And God wants us in our marriages to actually love the build up. He doesn't want us to think that, oh my gosh, like, you know what? Instead of me having to go through, you know, jumping hoops in order to have sex with my husband or sex with my wife. Then she's going to ask me for a massage. You know, she's going to tell me, well, if you want me to sleep with you, first you have to wash the dishes. I don't know. Is that, is that what some people do? I don't know. But, you know, like, what God wants is he wants you to look forward to the massage. He wants you to look forward to that text that you're going to send your wife at 9 o'clock in the morning telling her what you're going to do when you get home that night. You know, like he wants all of this stuff. He wants the build up. He wants marriages to be like this continuous, daily, slow, evolving foreplay. He doesn't want that to get robbed. He doesn't want someone to forget all of that and just focus on the orgasm. Forget all of that and just focus on the mechanical reward. He wants the reward to be so much more than mechanical. He wants the reward and the process to include the body, soul and spirit. For the pornified mind, they're looking for one mechanical reward. Imagine a married couple who just engage in sex and, and, you know, a husband 
may be comforting his wife because she's going through a really, really tough time and they may end up having sex together. The reward that she gets is going to be far more than an orgasm. The reward that she's going to get is a sense of comfort, a sense that, you know what, my husband is with me in this situation. The reward she's going to get is like a a leaving of the the pain and the sorrow that she feels and, you know, a, a healing of the heart along with, you know, an orgasm. And that's what God wants to give us. And this is why God grieves that, you know, the process of sexual attraction and response has actually been hijacked by sexual immorality when actually what God has in marriage when it comes to sexual arousal, this beautiful response is so much more than just a mechanical reward. Pornography does other things as well. It like completely stops you from seeing your um, spouse as beautiful. It stops you from being able to minister to their soul, minister to who they are, because you're comparing them to a virtual image. If you're a woman and you're, you know, you're addicted to pornography, you're never actually going to be able to fully engage in sex with your husband because you're going to compare yourself to the images that you see on the computer. You're going to be like, well, you know what? Actually, my boobs don't look like her or, you know, I'm not tall enough or I'm not sexy enough. Like, why would he even want to be with me? And it's all such a lie. And so what porn does is it hyperactivates the fantasy and makes your reality look completely pale in comparison, whereas the reality that God has for us is so much richer and so much more beautiful. Like God wants our sexuality to be this creative expression of who he is in our lives. Another thing is you end up being really selfish. So you can't, because your your brain has this mental like pathway of arousal, it, it has got wired to only being aroused in a certain way now and only having the reward in a certain way, you then don't know how to be unselfish. You don't know how to give. You don't know how to be sacrificial in your marital bed because your brain has got wired for selfishness. Some of you might think that this is quite extreme and that you don't battle with any of this stuff and thank God for that. But there are people battling with pornography. And I, like, I, I've never actually, um, can't ever really actually remember watching a porno. So oh, what do I know? But I know what it's like to be stuck in sin. I know what it's like to live in a trap of sexual immorality. And there are people here that this that I've talked about is very, very real to them. They want to go back to the days where pornography didn't dictate their life, where everything wasn't about a virtual image. The days where they could actually function without having to give in to their sexual desires constantly. There are people here that want to get delivered from pornography. And I really, really pray that today would indeed be a line that you draw in the sand. So how do you do that? It all boils down to renewing our mind. It all boils down to rewiring our desire. 
And if you truly, truly want to be delivered from pornography, you're going to have to repent. And repentance isn't just saying sorry. It's taking a 180-degree turn in the opposite direction. And if you truly want to be free from pornography, you're going to have to choose to walk in the opposite direction. And you're going to have to choose to confess. And you're going to have to choose to hate pornography. It can't be your friend. It can't be your scapegoat. It can't be what you go to when your wife's getting on your nerves or your husband's getting on your nerves. It can't be what you rely on when you're stressed or when you feel bad about yourself. You have to decide, I hate porn. And you have to be willing to delete the data. You have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to sever every single tie with pornography. And every tie that you've made with a virtual image. And every attachment that you have made. And shortly when we start praying, like, be asking the Holy Spirit to reveal those attachments to you. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where in your sexual development did you begin to pick up cues for arousal that led you to this path so that we can sever ties where those strongholds got built because the mind is where our strongholds get built and so where did those strongholds get built what did you see when you were a young person or what did you get involved in or who did you end up going out with what door got opened in your soul that allowed the stronghold of pornography to get to this and you have to be willing to cut your ties with that original thing, that original encounter, that original violation, that original image that you may now have got a dependency on, we have to break off your connection with that. You also need to make a covenant with your eyes. You have to choose not to linger. Wherever it is that you may go, if you need to get rid of your computer, get rid of your computer. If you need to get rid of that smartphone or that tablet, do it. If you need, and it's not even if you need, you have to confess to your husband or your wife. You have to confess to somebody so that they can help you. So those places that you might go to at certain times and you know those websites that you may log on to, someone has to know about it so that you can't continue to walk in secret. Because sin thrives in darkness. And discipleship, you have to dive into the word of God like never before. Your mind has to get renewed. You have to read the word of God until it washes away every deception. And speak in tongues. Like I know for me, when I was going through all my stuff, I was now a Christian and I really wanted to give up smoking and, you know, there was stuff that I... I think I wanted to give up weed. And, um, no, I'd given up weed by this time. But I remember the smoking and the alcohol. And I remember, I knew I needed to speak in tongues. I read like um, Nicky Cruz's book. And in there he spoke about when he started speaking in tongues, he just, there was an enablement for him to give up the drugs. And I knew that if I can just speak in tongues, I'll be better. And I remember I went into my bathroom 
before I did this, for about four weeks, I just desperately wanted to speak in tongues and it wasn't happening. So then I'd lie on my settee in my living room and just like, just talk rubbish, like waiting for tongues to come out. And then one day I was like, okay, I've had enough. And I went into the bathroom and at that time that was like my prayer closet. And I went into the bathroom, it was a Monday morning. I was like, you know what, Jesus, I'm not leaving here until I speak in tongues. I got all day, not working. I'm off summer, like I'm off school for the summer. I'm not leaving here until I speak in tongues. And then within four minutes, I was speaking in tongues. And for the next three days, I didn't stop speaking in tongues. Like I was just walking down the street, like just, obviously that's not what tongues sound like. But, um, you know, like I knew, I knew I needed that enablement. I needed the Holy Spirit as the enabler to kick in in my life. So if you don't speak in tongues and you're battling with a sin or you're battling with a struggle, then pray for tongues because there's an enablement that kicks in when that happens. And really study the word, like really, really get into discipleship, really get someone to come and study with you. And accountability, you need accountability. Like find somebody that you can be accountable to. Somebody that you can say that, do you know what, I logged onto that website again today. Or hey, I didn't log onto that website. Someone that will pray with you. And please don't just say, yeah, I'll do it and then don't do it. Like actually find somebody that can carry your arms in this battle. Because to have someone that's God ordained to be accountable to is true, like treasure, that's gold. So pray to the Lord about who it is that you can actually be accountable to. Get accountability software, like Covenant Eyes. They're an organization, Christian organization, that actually provide software, filtering software, where if you log onto a website, it will go, an email will be sent straight to your accountability partner. And you might have to pay, well, you are going to have to pay for it because it's not free, but it's better than paying for it with your soul. It's £10 a month or $10 a month worth the investment. Do it. Like, get this software. The website was up there. Um... The thing I will say is that be encouraged because it doesn't matter where you are in your process, God is with you. And I know from my life, I know the sin that I was in. I know, you know, the perversion that I just thought was normal life. I just thought it was part and parcel of just being a London girl, you know, just a social whatever. I had no idea that it was so much perversion. And then it got darker and darker and darker. And there was just so much pain involved. And I didn't know any other way but pain. Drug-fueled, alcohol-induced pain. I knew no other way. And I didn't know I could ever get out of it. But if God can deliver me, and if God can set me free from alcohol abuse and promiscuity and drug addictions, if he can set me free and set my feet on solid ground, he can do it for every single one of us. He's no respecter of persons. He's in the business of delivering us. And you know, the crazy, crazy thing is, is that for a long time, I stayed stuck in Romans 7. You know, like what Paul says, about what I want to do, I do not do, and what I don't want to do, I do. I I think I even almost use that as an excuse. 
And it wasn't, you know, I was struggling. I wept. Like, I had so much condemnation. And I was constantly like, what I don't want to do, I do. What I do want to do, I do not do. What's going to become of me? What's going to become of me? I constantly stayed there in that process. But what God wants is he wants us to step into Romans 8, which is there is no condemnation in those that are in Christ. He wants to have us step into sonship, into that spirit of adoption. He makes space for our process. This is our development. He's not going to fall off the throne because you're addicted to something. But the quicker we come out of it, the quicker we can walk in freedom. The quicker we stop being friends with sin and we stop finding our dependency and finding our comfort in that, the quicker we can step into true freedom. You know, this week, um, like I, I don't have any diaries from um, my heathen days. And, but I, I'm a journaler. Like I've always journaled, always, always. And even when I was you know, living years of this crazy lifestyle, I always journaled. And because I've thrown away all my diaries, apart from obviously my journaling with God, um, I found like this notebook and I found this diary entry. And it was from many years ago. It was when I was 25. And at this point, I was so broken. I was so embedded in sin. And to give you a bit of background, I had broken off an engagement that year and I hated myself. I hated myself for what I had become. And, you know, I was going strip clubs with my colleagues. I was taking loads of Class A drugs. And I was taking so many drugs to try and forget all the pain. And my name for myself was the C word. That's how I used to refer to myself. That's how much I hated myself. And so when I'd write my diary entries, I'd talk about myself as the C word. And that year, what had happened, like all loads of stuff always happens, but that particular year, in fact, the year before, um, I'd kind of just like been bored in my relationship and so this man that I was with I really really loved him I mean I loved him and I will still say as a Christian as someone who you know doesn't believe in any of the relationships I had in the past but he was a good good man he was a good man and I just got bored after five years of being with him and even though we were engaged I got bored and I just decided I wasn't interested in him anymore. And so I asked him to leave our flat. And because of that, because of all the things that I was doing, I hated myself. And I just wanted fun. I just wanted excitement. I just wanted to take loads of drugs. And I got caught up in, you know, this new place that I was working. And I was the girl that would make everyone spliffs for them. I was the one that was dealing with drugs. I was like the guy. I was the one that was going to the strip clubs with them. And I was probably... You know, there were quite a few guys there that I'd been with. And again, I just hated myself. And then three weeks prior to this diary entry, um, I was walking down the road and these six guys had chatted me up. And because I just cussed them, they broke my nose. And so 
They broke my nose. Well, actually, one of them picked up a glass bottle to smash over my head. And I obviously thought I was Xena Princess Warrior because, like, my friend ran. She just ran away. And my thing was, like, I'm not going to run away. You know, like, how can you pick up a bottle to smash over my head because I don't want to go out with you? But anyway, so instead of uh, smashing the bottle over my head, one of them punched me, broke my nose, and slashed my cornea. And so when I was writing this diary entry, I'd kind of like been in and out of hospital and I was still going out. I think it was December and I was wearing sunglasses <laughs> to cover the black eye and to like just, I, I just, you know, I think I was just healing from the black eye, but I was still going out. I was still raving. I was still going to all the local bars and getting involved in a whole pile of crap. And then, so while I'm writing this diary, while I'm, writing this diary entry, I'm trying to piece together what happened the night before. Because by this stage, I would get so drunk and so off my nut that I couldn't remember what happened the night before. I couldn't remember who I was with, couldn't remember what I was doing, couldn't remember how I got home, I couldn't remember anything. And I'd have blackouts and I'd have to work out what happened the night before by the bruises on my body, by what people said to me by, you know, just clues. I would piece together clues. And then every single time someone would say, well, do you know what? Actually, you did this and you went with him and you came here. In fact, you didn't even come home. As people would say this stuff to me, I would hate myself more and more and more. And I'd die a thousand deaths every single time. I'd piece together another part of what I did the night before. And on this particular night, I'd gone out and I'd been, I'd messed around with three different guys. And then it didn't mean I slept with them, but I messed around with them. And then about two o'clock in the morning when the, when the um, bar closed, I was in a cab with the third guy. And in this diary entry, I write that I knew my life was in danger and that somehow I got out of the cab and then I just ran. And that's what I would do. I'd always run home. After my night out, I would always run home and I'd always cry. <laughs> so I'd get off the night bus or I'd get out of the cab and I'd just run like crazy. And the reason I would run is because a year before that, at one o'clock in the morning, one night, I'd been mugged. And I was like this streetwise girl. And so I didn't even act as if that mugging even made a difference to me. And then those same boys tried to mug me again a month later. And I was like so angry with them. So I was like, do you know what? I'm going to take you to your mum. And I then started marching this guy that tried to mug me a second time home to his mum. And then before you knew it, you had like 12 boys with him on an estate surrounding me. And I was just like, do you know what? I know where you all live. (laughs) And they were like, we know where your mum lives. They didn't, obviously. Um, And so the way I would respond to tragedy you'd think that it didn't affect me, but it did affect me. Like all this trauma, all this condemnation, it affected me. And so when I would run home on the night bus, at the back of my mind, I'd be crying. Because firstly, I'd think, I don't want to go home. No one's at home. I don't want to be alone. And then secondly, I think, I don't want to get mugged. I don't want someone to harm me. And so my life was just such a torture. And then I got home that night, and then I phoned up the ex-boyfriend, the guy that, you know, I'd broken off the engagement with, and I just wept. 
And I said to him, like, why didn't you come and see me when my nose got broken? And I don't even know what his response was. Then I put the phone down on him and then I just wept and I wept and I wept. And in this diary entry, I continued to just swear at myself and just say, like, who the F am I? And when I read that diary entry, all I just thought this week is that the whole time all of that was going on, Jesus was right there. I didn't know him. I was praying at certain times, but he was there the whole time in all of my poo, in all of my rubbish, in all of my resistance, in all of my rebellion, in all of my addictions. He was right there in every single bit of the process. And even then, he knew that I would still continue to resist him. He knew that even a year after that, when I actually did become a Christian, that instead of coming to him, I'd come to religion. He knew that. He knew that I would live in Romans 7 for the next two years, where what I wanted to do, I did not do. What I did want to do, I couldn't do. He knew that. And he was still there in the process. And the whole time that that's going on, He was preparing a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The whole time that was going on. And even though I continued to resist him, and even though I didn't know how to come out of Romans 7, he kept beckoning me into Romans 8, into adoption, into sonship, that place where I'm not walking in the flesh anymore, but I'm walking in the spirit. I'm not striving for, you know, deliverance. I'm not striving to get out of the addiction. I'm walking in the spirit. And I feel that today is an invitation to step into Romans 8. So if there's anyone here and you're stuck in Romans 7, where you're doing what you do not want to do, and what you do want to do, you don't know how to do, you don't know how to walk in purity, you don't know how to get off this, you know, addictive path, you don't know how to restore your marriage, you don't know how to fall in love with your husband or wife again, enter into sonship. Rewire your desire. And this is what I feel about homosexuality. I feel that because as a whatever, as a collective of people, the spirit of homosexuality has rejected family. And ultimately, what homosexuals are looking for is family. It's sonship. It's adoption. So for me, sonship and adoption into God's family and into his love is the answer for everything. And so I just appeal to you, if you would like prayer today, ask to come into that place of adoption. Being his, belonging to him, it will rewire your desire. You won't want any of the other stuff. I don't want any of the stuff that he delivered me from. I don't even have a craving for it because I have found something that's so much better, so much higher, so much more rewarding, better than anything I've ever known, and it's because I'm his. And so I ask you that if you want to get delivered and you want to get free, just become his and he will do the rest. So I'm just going to pray for us. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you, God. I thank you. I thank you, God. I thank you that you are deliverer. I thank you that you do adopt us into your love. I thank you, Jesus, that whatever anyone needs in this place, wherever anyone is, that you're with them in the process and you know, you know their heart, you know the beginning from the end. You want to give all of us beauty for ashes. You know what we're going to walk through. You know when, you know how. And you're right there preparing a table for each and every one of us in the presence of our enemies. And you're just inviting us to come and feast at this table in your presence where there is deliverance, where there is hope, where there is purity, there is holiness. Everything we need is at this table. We just have to come. So I just thank you, Jesus, that there's a mobilizing There's a Holy Ghost mobilizing here that people would feel free enough to come to your table just as they are and allow you to woo them into freedom, love them into destiny. I love you, Jesus. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday.